Hello and welcome back to the Linux Gaming Co-op News Punch podcast. This is officially episode 26, a very delayed episode 26 because the coronavirus lockdown has hit pretty hard and yeah, it's not been great. But it's Liam here, I'm back and it's co-op, so I'm joined once again by my friend Sam Zai. How's it going? It's going quite well, quite well indeed. Good. How has the whole lockdown thing been going for you? Well, uh, right now, strictly speaking, there isn't really like a big, like kind of a curfew type of a thing. But like, honestly, I don't go anywhere. And thus, I haven't really noticed anything changing too much. All right. So about the same for you, really, then? Yeah, it's basically been the same. Like, I, I'm just like enjoying my 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 university courses like remotely and like as far as i'm concerned like we we can keep go we we can keep doing this for a while longer okay okay so we're here once again today to talk about linux linux gaming and everything sort of in between yes yeah the, yeah we have a we have a wide variety of topics to cover because we haven't been doing the podcast in a while so we actually had to like trim it down because the document had some rather old news by this point but yeah we have a bunch of things that we're going to cover today yeah so firstly just a bit of sort of hardware driver news then i -hmm. actually found this quite interesting that sony are going to in some way officially support the new playstation 5 dualsense controller on linux with a new driver Mm. that's pretty cool because They're doing this officially, as in people from Sony are putting in the work to make all the features of it properly work under Linux. Was the was the previous one that was like for the, the, the PS3s and PS4 controllers, was that one not official? That I'm not actually too sure on. But the interesting thing here, though, is that this is something that is brand new. So why would they be doing it directly, do you think? Kind of don't know. I mean, it could be so that they can make it work on, like, let's say, like, mainstream Linux devices. So, like, I mean, I, I guess that for the time being, don't the Chromebooks still use Linux? They they haven't switched over to that uh, that Google-based, like, kernel thing. So I don't know if that has something to do with it. Mm. Um, I yeah. don't personally think that Sony themselves have interest in, like desktop grade like linux uh gaming so much it could be that it's simply like they just decided like what the hell we can sell more controllers if we just make this like driver available or something or maybe it's targeting at a specific type of a device like these chromebook devices or something along those lines um personally i don't i don't think it's like some kind of a i mean I suppose technically there might be the possibility that a future Sony device might use Linux, but I honestly I don't I don't think that's going to be the case. They're probably pretty content with going the 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 the, the free BSD based route that they've been doing. So I don't know. It, it could be that it was simply like easy enough for them to do it, so they decided to do it or something. Yeah, it's just it's just strange, really, when you think about it. Some a company as massive as Sony just coming along going, oh, here's a here's a driver for our brand new controller for Linux. Mm. Pretty awesome, though, because it seems like quite a nice controller. And hopefully, once 
this is all actually in the Linux kernel. So probably with the new distributions coming out, either the end of this year or next year, you then have true out-of-the-box support for the PS5 DualSense. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, more support is better. Yeah, exactly. Now, on the subject of games, let's talk about games for a minute, because Feral Interactive, the porting company that does Linux ports, Mac ports, they do Switch, Android, iOS, they do a bit of everything. But in the past, they've done quite a lot of Linux ports, haven't they? Yeah, pretty much. They they were one of the big ones. Yeah, they were one of the earliest to get involved. And they gave us titles like Mad Max and Shadow of Mordor. Now, unfortunately, both of those have been delisted for both Linux and MacOS on Steam. So on the store pages, they no longer show the SteamOS icon to show Linux support. It's just... There's no system requirements. It's just, it's like neither of them are there. Mm, but I guess they are still like downloadable. So you, you like technically have access to the ports. They just don't show up on the store page. Yeah. I, even if someone bought it today, they would still get access to both Mad Max and Shadow of Mordor for Linux. It's just that it's not advertised and no longer supported. The question yeah. is why? Now, when we spoke to. Feral Interactive, they mentioned that the reason is a licensing issue. So the licenses have expired. So this is sort of similar to when, like, I think some of the didn't, like, I think there was a GTA game or something that had to, like, pull back some content because some music license expired. But in this case, it's, like, the entire license of the port. Yeah. Licensing is such a, it's a minefield, but when it comes to games there have been games that have been completely removed from steam or all platforms i uh that showdown is one of the games this happened to because of all the music licenses in it just Mm. expired and the whole game had to be removed for sale yeah this is kind of a special case though isn't it because it's only the linux and mac official versions that are gone well not gone but not advertised yeah the the I I guess this kind of, you know, uh, relates to how Feral does their ports. It it seems like their way of doing this is they, like, license the game and act as, like, a secondary publisher for the the game, and they port it, and then they sell it, you know, as as a licensed product. So I, I didn't know that their licensing terms included, like, some kind of a limited time frame for these things. I thought it was, like, I don't know, like, an eternity license, but... Yeah, I imagine it's different between developers and publishers because this is the only ports it's happened to. But it seems like it was more of a a thing overall with Warner Brothers because Mac lost a couple more titles. So it seems like an overall thing with Warner sort of just either not renewing it or Farrell even not renewing it. But it is weird that to have such a time limit in place it is very weird yeah it is a very very strange idea but on for mad max and shadow Mordor, both of them had certain special online features so they were single player games but they had special online features which were shut down or were about to be shut down so i imagine it was a case that feral either couldn't 
or didn't want to have the expense of going back and updating those ports to remove those parts, perhaps? Because uh, it could, could be, yeah. Because they, they're quite old now. Yeah, I, I think at this point, like, uh, I think, well, wasn't Shadow of Mordor like a very early feral port? Yeah, it was. It was one of the earliest ones. Yeah. But it, it sucks, though, because both of them are, are good games. I enjoyed the crap out of both of them. And both of them had opt-in Vulcan versions as well, which made the performance of each of them, like, way better. Mm. Yeah, it, it kind of sucks that, like, it wasn't that long ago that the Vulcan versions were kind of, like, pushed. I think they were in some kind of a beta form, weren't they? Yeah. Um. But, yeah, now, now it's kind of, you know, well... Technically, you still have access to those versions, so it's like fine in that sense. But it's kind of you know sad that they updated it not that long ago, and now they're like you know pulling the the license and whatnot. It's it's a it's the changing landscape of not just Linux gaming but gaming as a whole because Feral were one of the early ones. They came in thanks to Steam machines and Steam OS. We have them on record saying like that is the reason they started porting to Linux. And they're not doing it as much as before because the entire landscape has completely changed from three to four years ago. Mm. But Feral have only recently just announced, this was a brand new announcement of Total War Warhammer 3. And on the same day, Feral confirmed they're doing a Linux port for that as well. Yeah, they they, they seem to be like, uh, like they're pretty... Um pretty chummy with creative assembly yeah we're pretty pretty chummy with creative yeah they've been doing a lot of the total war stuff not only to linux but to other platforms as well i think they've been doing some like ios and android stuff related to some total war stuff yeah yeah, yeah. they've they've been doing that's that's another thing to mention is that barrel since they started doing linux ports they've expanded into those other areas which, let's face it, Nintendo Switch and mobile probably rake in far more money. Probably often more money than even Windows, and we've seen that in with other games. Mm, yeah, but absolutely. on the subject of Total War, we're still waiting to see what happens with Total War Tr- Troy. Although I don't think it's called Total War Troy. It's one of those weirdly named ones. Because yeah, it was announced originally, and then it went Epic Exclusive. Right. Which was really annoying. So it was announced it was coming to Linux and Mac. Then it went Epic exclusive. But then Feral did the Mac port for the Epic store. And it's still coming to Steam, though, at some point this year. And the Steam page, even today, still says coming to Linux and Mac for the Steam release. And Feral, as of yet, have not said, no, it's no longer happening. They've been, you know, the usual sort of non-committal answers so this year we should hopefully see total war warhammer 3 and troy on linux officially mm. that'll be quite nice I, I still haven't even managed to put like enough hours into total war warhammer 2 <laughs> I, <laughs> I i got it because a friend wanted to play it and then we played like i think like maybe a little under 10 hours and now he's already saying like we need to buy total war warhammer 3 and i'm like we didn't even like do that much of Warhammer 2 like come on <laughs> <laughs> these are these are expensive games they're not just expensive but they're massive games aren't they yeah they are really big 
because they're really big games. So if you own Total War Warhammer and Total War Warhammer 2, you get access to this special massive like combined map now they're bringing out a third one if they then add, <laughs> add another map to that you're gonna have it's just gonna be probably the most ridiculous strategy game map ever made at that point if they if they do combine it again mm. well we'll see how that goes yeah on the subject of ports one name in particular a lot of Linux users and a lot of Mac users as well will know is Ethan Lee, otherwise known as Flippitigibibil. <laughs> Did I? I've never, I, I've never even like. I, I I don't remember how that's like spelled. <laughs> I have never tried to say it out loud. Wait, it's it, it's a drinking game. Say Flippitigibibil. How many times do you have to say it? Like I I didn't get it right that time, but. <laughs> Ethan Lee is a one-man porting machine who has been responsible for absolutely tons. They're also the developer of FNA, which is like the XNA compatibility tech, which Ethan has used to port so many games. I think he's is he for fifty or sixty now? Yeah, and didn't he like at some point do like the speedrun Linux ports where he like? Just, like kind of tested how fast he could port a game to Linux using like the FNA technology and all of that stuff. Yeah, I remember hearing something like that. Like I, I think it was literally down to like minutes for a port. Well, Ethan actually did recently. There was a certain Linux event, and they basically set up a video of doing a Linux game and packaging it up. It was quite interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember that. The reason that we're talking about Ethan right now is that they put out a blog post titled Future Games and Mac Support, and they're basically shutting down their Mac ports. There's going to be no future Mac ports from Ethan because part of the reason is how hostile Mac is becoming as a platform to game developers. You've got, it seems like every year there's a new hoop that they have to go through. And that's on top of the pretty big expense that comes with being a Mac user. But their Ethan's Linux ports are going to continue. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, like one of those cases where uh, in order to develop for a Mac, you need to own a Mac um, because otherwise you don't have access to the developer tooling. And I think like the, the reason, like the big problems when it comes to like game ports and uh, stuff like that on the Mac side of things has been like, first of all, they deprecated 32-bit, so they had they forced you know devs to make 64-bit versions of their things. And yeah. then now there's the recent move from x86 to ARM, which means that they're, you know, I mean, I, there is like some level of compatibility there, so the old x86 stuff still works on the M1 CPUs. Yeah, but they've got that uh, Rosetta 2, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah Rosetta 2. Um, but like, I think there's still kind of sort of a soft expectation to port stuff over to the like native ARM um, processor side of things because that will be you know faster. And we, we'll never know how long Rosetta 2 is going to be a thing because you know Mac is a little bit more willing and ready to kind of just scrap something and just move on to a new thing and force the developers to go along with that. 
And then there's the whole thing that you know you need to sign the the executables in order for them to be like easily executable on on regular customer Macs. Otherwise, they don't run. Yeah, it's it's becoming a big hodgepodge and a big mess basically for developers. And Ethan isn't the first developer. There's quite a big list of developers who've turned around and said, "Yeah, we're not going to do Mac anymore." But thankfully, at least in this case, future ports will be primarily Linux and Windows, if applicable, like if they're upgrading a game for the developer. So mm. at least in this case, it's it's good news. Yeah, you know, in our case, we definitely we're not we're not missing out anything because we're not Mac users. Yeah, but Ethan is yes a serious porting machine. Yeah, he has a massive list of many of the ports actually that he's done are of some of my favorite games. Yeah, well, stuff like Pyre, Transistor. Ethan ported some pretty massive titles as well, like Fez. The Fez. Yeah, that game's insane. Let's talk apps for a minute software whoa yeah have you heard of the heroic games launcher sort of i haven't really paid too much attention to it because it didn't look like it was software that i was remotely interested in but do tell me about okay so unfortunately epic games do not officially support linux with their store they do with unreal engine well sort of developers have to screw around a bit but it's there but they don't support Linux with their store. Thankfully, though, for anybody who has been claiming all those free games, or if you're perhaps a dual booter, or you're somebody who wants to switch over to Linux and you don't want to lose access to all those games, there is now the Heroic Games Launcher, which is an open source project that aims to be compatible with the Epic Store using their API. So you can log in with your Epic account, download games, and then run them with wine so it's it's a really interesting project because moving over to linux again doesn't have to mean you give up all of your previous games what's interesting though about the heroic games launcher is that they're not stopping at just supporting the epic store Mm. they do have plans to work with other stores as well uh were there any examples mentioned because yeah they're going to look at integrating with the likes of itch.io okay gog good old games Mm -hmm. and humble bundle at the very least so in future that could be another good all-in-one solution yeah i mean i I personally don't really see well I, i guess it would be kind of cool to have all of that in a single launcher the itch.io client is very good i i've been using that and it's fantastic i think it Honestly, it's one of the best launchers that I have access to right now. It, I, honestly, it works better than Steam. Um, yeah, the thing about it is that the Itch.io launcher is open source as well. Yeah. And one of the, let's be realistic here, though, and be fair. One of the reasons that the Itch.io launcher works really well is it does so little. Yeah, it doesn't do a whole lot. But, I mean, honestly... It still does game updates. Well, yeah. Which, you know, we, we're still sort of missing a thing for GOG that does that. Actually. <laughs> we have like Mini Galaxy. Yeah, there but, is Mini Galaxy. But I think that doesn't like do the, like if you set it to, like it will tell you when there's an update to download. But then if you download it, then it's like the entire, like, just like entire, uh, like game packages downloaded. So there is no like 
partial updates or anything like that. It, it I mean, it is called a mini galaxy for a reason. Like it's it's pretty minimal when it comes to like implementing the stuff from like say the actual Galaxy client. Yeah, it's just outside of Steam and itch for gaming on Linux for stores. It's yeah, it's a bit of a mess really because Gog have Galaxy which they don't support Linux with. Epic Games have the Epic Store, which they don't support Linux with. And it's like, it's again down to a community of a few people in their spare time to make this stuff work, where these companies that could easily afford it don't bother. But we've got such a small market share right now that from the business side, I do still understand it. I can sort of understand it, but it doesn't like it still doesn't mean that I am not disappointed with the level of support we get from GOG. Oh, yeah, GOG especially. Yeah. On to more positive news, though. It's your favorite subject. We're going to talk about NVIDIA. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Although in this case, it's actually something that's not bad. NVIDIA are gearing up to actually support hardware accelerated X Wayland. Mm. Now, that is pretty big. Yeah, XWayland is basically the X11 compatibility layer, basically, for Wayland. So this is what all of your applications that haven't been ported to Wayland will run through. Some some people say that it's like the X server or something like that. But what it does is basically it takes... like Sure, it is an X11 server in the sense that it takes in x11 commands and then it converts them into wayland commands so that all of those windows are still rendered on wayland just through x wayland so in a nutshell then all those games that people have that are in some way tied to x11 xorg will then actually run on wayland through x wayland yeah uh and i think like with the like up until this point with nvidia the problem has been that NVIDIA has been kind of a dick about Wayland support. They have <laughs> been pushing their own like uh, their own uh, kind of API for all of this thing. They have had their own EGL streams thing, whereas everybody else kind of was like, okay, GBM is good enough. Uh, so they've been kind of forging a path of their own, and that led to the fact that XWayland only supported GBM for the uh, hardware accelerated rendering. So if you ran XWayland with the NVIDIA driver, what you'd get is the LLVM pipe CPU, like software renderer, for all of the things that require some kind of acceleration. And yeah, that doesn't make for a good you know, gaming. Right, but they are sorting this out now, or they're beginning to at least, which is important because Wayland will eventually replace entirely X11. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, at this point, to my knowledge, X doesn't really like Xorg doesn't have that many upstream developers that are like actually pushing out releases. I don't think it has any. Yeah, it has people that are seemingly like committing stuff, but nobody is merging stuff in, and nobody is doing the releases anymore. And well, basically, everybody that had, like worked on Xorg has been re- like pushing for Wayland to be adopted next because you know they don't want to work on Xorg anymore. Yeah, it's it's basically dead. Yeah, pretty much. Which and Wayland is supposed to not only replace it but be better hopefully in every way because it's far more modern than everything. I think everybody that has tried Wayland and compared it between like Wayland and Xorg has pretty much just come out of it saying like 
yeah, the Wayland experience is just so much better. It's it doesn't have the same tearing problems that plague many Exorc uh, desktops. It is more smooth, more responsive, and yeah, it's kind of just amazing. And they can implement uh, some stuff on Wayland that is really difficult to do on Exorc. So you have things like uh, variable refresh rate on like multi-monitor setups where only one of the re- monitors is variable refresh rate. Uh, capable and the other one isn't, for example. And um, yeah, there's a bunch of cool stuff that can come out of this uh, when we get more on the Wayland side of things. Yeah. So this is going to be interesting for the future of Linux. And frankly, NVIDIA have to do this anyway, don't they, really? Because... Yeah, at some point. At some point, they definitely do need to do this because eventually they're going to be just left behind. And then then there isn't really much that you can run with those NVIDIA GPUs on Linux if everybody else is already well moved past that and into the Wayland side of things. Because you've already got uh, Ubuntu again. They are going to try it by default for the next release. Yeah, I heard about that. Hopefully it'll go well. I've I've heard a lot of people very loudly complaining about it as if it's the end of the world. Um, some of the people that are on the, I guess anti-Wayland bandwagon are really loud and kind of obnoxious. Yeah, well, that's what you always get, isn't it? Anytime people comment on something and they're loudly complaining, you have to think most of the time it's like that's only like one to two percent of people in any subject ever. And the rest, you know, because all the 98 percent of people are being silent because they just don't care. Yeah, most likely. You know, they just want it to work. It actually makes me wonder because like some distros have already been doing the Wayland as default for a while. And yeah. that's the thing that I kind of sometimes wonder is do we like, because we do the, uh, we do this week, like the monthly survey thing. Yeah. And there's the, we also track the Wayland adoption in there. And sometimes I've wondered like, are there people in there that are, that think that they are running Xorg? but they have actually been running Wayland for a while because the experience has been so smooth that they haven't even noticed that it's like switched over at some point. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. <laughs> so in our Gaming on Linux monthly survey where people basically input data into their profile and we just gather it up at the start of the month and show off any changes. So checking on what session people are in out of 1,300 people, so 1,307 only 8.95% said they are on Wayland. I'm part of that. <laughs> I, I've been I've been on I've been on Wayland for like ages. And honestly, like apart from some small issues, it pretty much just works. Okay. And it looks like 2021 might be the year of Wayland on the desktop for KDE as well. They're aiming for they said a production ready session. Mm. I really want to like KDE and I, I do. But I kind of, I I make a lot of jokes about KD as well, because you have GNOME, or GNOME, whatever. Somebody will complain about the way we say it. That, GNOME is supposedly, you're just supposed to use it out of the box and not screw around with anything. Whereas KDE, it's like there is an option for everything. And then there's options inside of that. And it doesn't really work all that well with NVIDIA. So I'm kind of hoping once NVIDIA get this X-Whale and stuff set up and ready, maybe KDE and NVIDIA might work nicer together as well. Maybe. That, I mean, I, nice. I, I, honestly, honestly, I I wouldn't, like, I 100% expect NVIDIA to somehow screw up the Wayland experience. Too. <laughs> so let's talk about Valve. 
They've been a little bit naughty, haven't they? Naughty, naughty Valve. They've been up to a few tricky little things over the last few years. Yeah, um, at, at like th- when we originally wrote about this in the doc, we only had like one thing in here, but we had to actually change this part because they have there have been so many like new things that have happened with uh, with like Valve and Steam that we've kind of just had to build upon this. Yeah. So Valve, well, it's not just Valve on this one though. Valve and others they got fined by the European Commission for Geo-Blocking. Yeah, so basically what they were doing is they were selling uh, Steam keys, which were only like which could only be activated in certain parts of the EA, EEA, the European Economic Area, or whatever that thing is. I think it's European Economic Area. But um, yeah, this is not allowed by the EEA rules uh, because... Inside the EEA, there is supposed to be a free transfer of goods and services across borders. Yeah. And if you sell a something like a Steam key, which I think I, I'm not 100% up to all, the, all of the legalese on what all of these things are, but I think they are still considered goods, even though they are like digital. Like some people argue, at least in like the United States, that it's some kind of like a rental or like a license and not actually a product. But I think still in the EU, it's considered a good. And thus, it must be possible for that to move between borders freely. So you must be able to buy something in another EEA country and then, you know, take it to your country yeah. and use it in your your, your country. So they, they find Valve 1.6 million euros, which is, I mean, somebody at Valve could just reach down the back of the sofa and pull that out. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's not a whole lot. It's 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 nothing. But it, it does bring up an interesting point, though, because Valve gave us a statement and they basically said it's not about buying games directly on Steam. It's about the third-party purchases. So Steam keys so not steam purchases steam keys so if you bought a key from somebody somewhere else that was for a different european country that had say a much lower price people were doing that to get to get their games cheaper basically yeah i think like in some of the like because technically i don't think steam does things too much by region i think it does it largely by currency and i think in some of the like eastern european countries that are part of the eea you can uh, you can still buy stuff in like non-euro currency and i think it might end up being cheaper and then obviously the possibility then like is available to you that you buy one of these keys that was sold in like let's say one of these lower income eastern eastern european countries and then you activate it somewhere you know like a more economically developed country, so something like Northern Europe or something. Yeah, but yeah, they, they, there was a bit of a fuss kicked up about this by the the European Commission. Uh, I I mean, the EEA and the European like Union is a is a complicated thing, and um, yeah, I, I don't like know if Valve even realized that this wasn't something that you know wasn't actually allowed. Um, probably not, but well. They've, well, they've now been fined for it. So Yeah, they, they've been fined for it. And Valve, I'm sure, must have their own lawyers, you know, ready and waiting for anything like this that appears. And I just, a company as successful and as wealthy as Valve, I don't believe 
wouldn't understand these things overall. Yeah. Which leads into my next point is that Valve lost 4 million at a minimum for patent infringement on the Steam controller. One of my favorite controllers ever made. Now, th- the reason though is so stupid. Ironberg Inventions, a subsidiary of Corsair Gaming. I actually had to look this up. I've never heard of Ironberg Inventions before, but it's Corsair, basically. They have a patent for a game controller that has buttons on the back. What the fuck? Uh, did it say since when they've had this patent? Because I definitely have seen controllers before the Steam controller that had the back button. Yeah, so they've held the patent since 2014. Okay. And well, I I don't I don't remember exactly. Like I I just remember I had a friend in school that was like a super duper uh, hardcore cons- like console gamer, and I think there were some controllers sold for those uh, consoles that had like special back buttons that had special functionality or something. Yeah, but here's... I don't remember since when those have actually been made. So here's the thing, though: if anybody company wants to have a controller with buttons on the back, they will need to license this patent from Ironberg Inventions and Corsair Gaming. How ridiculous is that? Just to have buttons on the back of a gamepad that you hold in your hand, you now have have to license that. And apparently they, they made Valve aware of this and Valve just pushed on anyway, apparently. So they've been fined a minimum of 4 million, but because the infringement was, quote, willful the figure actually might go up with enhanced damages. Ooh, enhanced damages for implementing back buttons. No, oh it's, it's so stupid. It's such a tragedy. Oh, my God. How will how will this company ever recover? It just it goes to show how utterly fucking ridiculous the US patent system is. Yeah, it's, it's completely stupid. Like, freaking rounded edges and... It's it's completely stupid. You you can like you can patent a like a a, a freaking aesthetic kind of like a, a visual design element or something, and it's completely dumb. Like you could add buttons anywhere on a controller, and honestly, the fact that them specifically being on the back is something that you can patent. Yeah, that's just completely stupid. On to more valve news. Yeah, we, we, we have, like, like I said, we have a lot of these. <laughs> this one is a bit different, though. There is a lawsuit going on that claims Valve are basically abusing their position on game prices. Now, this is a bit of a strange one, really, because it's not anyone big who's filed this. It's five people. Two of them are, like, the mum of kids account it's just yeah it's 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 a really weird one but apparently in the steam agreement there's a most favored nations provision what that means is that essentially developers have to keep the price of their games the same on steam as other platforms so a developer couldn't put their game on itch.io for five dollars as a standard price and then on steam for ten dollars at the standard as a standard price now, Wasn't there some arguing that it was specific to, like, if you're selling the Steam keys? This is what's not clear, because 
from documentation I've looked through, Steam keys, there are provisions there to say to not give Steam a worse deal. But then you also have the other main Steam agreements, which are usually under non-disclosure agreements. In the past, we've seen other developers claim the same thing, that the games have to be at the same price on Steam, but it's never actually been properly confirmed whether that is actually true or not, Mm. which is what makes the lawsuit interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely something that should be investigated, and it seems like if the lawsuit is going to, you know, go on, then... Uh, we will hopefully find out, or maybe we won't. Maybe this whole thing will be settled, and we're we're never going to hear from it ever again. Um, but I mean, Steam is kind of in a dominant position, so they could definitely do this. Like they they wield enough power that they would be able to have some kind of impact like this. I've like there's there's been a lot of like. Uh, I think this particular, the article that you did on this sparked quite the discussion. And apparently, GOL has an anti valve bias now. Which um, is completely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and I, I saw a lot of like arguing like Steam isn't a monopoly. Steam, Steam doesn't have like, uh, like a, a dominant position on the, the market. But honestly, they do. Like, on on like the PC gaming side of things, sure there are other stores. There are things like HIO and GOG, which are tiny compared to Steam. Then there is some like there are some publisher specific stores. You also have uh, the you can't forget the Epic Game Store. And yeah, then there is the Epic Game Store. But I think like Epic Game Store is kind of the only like let's say bigger-ish competitor to Steam, and I think they're still relatively, like, tiny compared to, like, the behemoth that Steam is. And one thing that, like, kind of annoyed me a lot was this whole, like, claiming, like, that Steam isn't a very dominant store and, like, gaming platform, because it absolutely is. I think there isn't, like, a... the, the, The number of indie devs, for example, that have managed to actually strike it rich without being on Steam is vanishingly tiny. And I think it's pretty much a, like you must be on Steam or you must get a Epic Game Store like exclusivity deal in order to be, you know, profitable if you want to sell your games. Yeah, which, pretty much. Which isn't a good thing at all. Like, let's, even if we acknowledge that Epic Game Store does wield some power because they do the stupid exclusivity deals, which I don't agree with either. That still leaves us with two big corporations that are basically kind of dictating the course of how, like, what games are sold and how they are accessed and all of that stuff. Yeah, it still isn't good. <laughs> it's it's the same anywhere. Look at GPUs. You've currently got pretty much just AMD and NVIDIA. Mm. Intel are supposedly soon coming along with their dedicated GPUs. It is the same in any industry. Having only a couple major players is is always going to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, in, in some circumstances, it's sort of working. Like with CPUs, we've recently had the whole thing kind of like get turned around where Intel got complacent and then AMD managed to pull ahead. But that's still like not guaranteed to happen and competitive markets don't work super well if there are only two competitors. It works better if there are multiple. So 
Yeah, it's 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 definitely like annoying when I see people like uh, complain about how or, or or basically like white knight for Steam and for Valve and kind of just hand wave all issues away because they like the platform or something. That's just to me. Like, yeah, we should we should despite the fact that yes. Valve has done a lot of good things for us Linux gamers, and Steam is still basically the biggest and best supported platform there is for Linux gaming. Uh, we still should maintain a little bit of objectivity. We should be able to look at these companies and kind of realize that, hey, there might be problems here. Maybe these problems should be solved and not just go like completely blind white knight mode and just you know, defend big corporations that don't really care about us to the death. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the difference between being a fan and a fanatic, basically, isn't it? Yeah, sort of. Uh, but I mean, I think the the, the, the etymology of the, <laughs> the word fan might kind of, you know, stem from fanatic. But Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. That's that's kind of like the joke about it, though, isn't it? Yeah. Some people I mean, is... just go way overboard in their love for Valve. And it, it it's not just Valve, though. It's any company, anywhere. People attach themselves, become tribal. It's it's the same mm. with Linux distributions. But yes, Valve yeah. have done a lot for Linux gaming. But let's have a little objectivity and remind ourselves they are a company. They do get things wrong. And that's yeah. okay. Everybody learns from things because nobody is perfect. Speaking of corporations that are not perfect. <laughs> there we go. All right. <laughs> so this was uh, relatively recent. So Terraria for Stadia has been cancelled. Oh, the horror. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is kind of annoying what happened here. So apparently from what I've heard and what I've seen, the Google account of the developer got like locked and banned this isn't just a developer though this is the founder of relogic the developer of terraria yeah um (laughs) it's not just it's not just some like backroom programmer who's had their google account yeah right right so so is i mean this like of all of the google accounts in that developer team to ban like this was (laughs) this was pretty much the most effective one um but yeah so uh google for some reason uh pretty much banned the account and that meant that i think the terraria youtube channel like the official one got uh, wiped off the face of the earth uh and well the the youtube account is still there but they cannot actually do anything with it it doesn't oh, even it's have like an... locked so all of the content is still there but like they can't access it yeah it, even the avatar is a plain avatar with like a line strike through it nice yeah to really rub it in like you're not getting <laughs> this but it's oh, it's so bad because Stadia as a platform really needs like just a ton of good news because recently they basically said we're changing direction, we're not doing first party games, we're shutting down Stadia games and entertainment, we're not doing first party games, and instead we're going to license Stadia tech out to other companies and publishers and partners but the stadia store itself is going to stay there and they're just going to pull in third party games so there was a lot of news out there a lot of negative news of people 
saying, well, it's going to end up in the Google graveyard. And then only shortly after, you've now got the developer of Terraria saying, fuck you, Google, we're never doing anything with you again. <laughs> yeah, they, I, I think the, 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 the statement that they made too was like, doing business with you is a liability and all of yep. that stuff because like from what i understand like the google account is locked out so they, they can't access it and i think that google account was the one that they probably used to like submit stuff to stadia not to mention the <laughs> developer probably had a bunch of you know important stuff tied to yeah. that account so and and like there's seemingly no explanation for why this happened, and the developer nope. didn't get like any acknowledgement of the issue from Google for like two weeks. Three weeks, is, it was. I mean, three. three weeks. Oh my yeah. god. Well, I mean, if you've if you've ever like interacted, if you've been a YouTuber or you've you know followed YouTubers, you probably know that Google never actually like met, like they they never communicate. Um, it's a complete like it's as if you're talking to a wall. Um, so this isn't exactly the first time somebody's Google account has been locked out for no reason, which actually this, this kind of, you know, I, I, I talked to you about this a little bit because I came up with this new strategy, which you shouldn't use. Uh, and I'm not responsible if you use this, but there is this new strategy that I came up with where you can now cancel any indie developers Stadia game <laughs> for them by simply amassing enough YouTube accounts or other Google accounts and then just going to their, if they have a YouTube channel, just go and flag every video that they have and just mass flag them. Eventually, the YouTube AI bots will realize that, hey, this, this channel is evil and bad and horrible and bad for advertising. So they will, they will probably shut it down. And at that point, it's entirely possible that you have locked, out the, locked the developer out of all of their uh, Google apps, uh, their their Google Play Store purchases, their Google Documents, their YouTube accounts, and possibly also canceled their Stadia uh, releases. So you know, if you if you, <laughs> I, I should not say if you want to do this, then, then <laughs> go ahead because you shouldn't do this. This is a horrible thing, but it kind of demonstrates that the 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 Google ecosystem is kind of a horrible trash fire, and like they need to do something. It's. It's all kinds of ridiculous because, as you said, if if a developer comes along and says, oh, our game's coming to Stadia now, what would happen if tons of people just went and mass-reported the, their official YouTube account? They could then get con- entirely locked out of Google. And that's the most ridiculous thing because, unlike when you go to websites that have social logins, it creates an account with that website. Whereas with Google, you've got that one account which is linked through every Google service. You don't just have a setup individually with each Google service. It's all that one single account. If something happens, your online life has been lost. Yeah. All of all of your music that you have purchased, all of your applications and games you have purchased for Android, your YouTube channels, if you have any documents on Google Docs, then that, those are gone. Your email, which is very vital. Um, yeah, it's it's just going to you're you're just basically screwed if you lose your Google account and you have all of your stuff tied to it. Like it's it's crazy. Stuff Absolutely like crazy. that has been quite a wake up call for me. I've been steadily moving over to Proton Mail because I don't necessarily want to give up every part of Google because I I use and like certain parts of it. It's all about again my ju- my little thing about being a fan or a fanatic. Use 
what makes sense. So I've started moving over from Gmail to Proton Mail so that in future, if anything ever does happen like that, at least then I've got the most important thing there ready. And yeah. it's just a little bit more private because with Proton Mail, you either have your little free account or you pay or donate. So they actually work based on that money. They're not invading your privacy and looking into your emails and selling data and adverts. Yeah, I, I've been paying for my email as well. I've moved to Postio. And um, yeah, basically, I just pay one euro a month for uh, access to an email account. And like I, I've been enjoying that because it gives me a sort of like um, a sense of se- like security and safety that, first of all, they are not financially incentivized to look into my emails. And second of all, if Google decides to ban my Google account, at least I will have access to my primary email account. Because otherwise, if I don't have access to that, how am I going to recover all of my other accounts? Like yeah. It's going to be a massive hassle to try and like do it after. Because at that point, you don't have access to the email account. You probably don't have access to like recovery email account. It's, yeah, it, it's just a horrible, 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 horrible thing. And like this should never happen. But because Google is moderated by bots that don't understand anything because they are stupid AIs, I mean, this is just going to keep happening in the future. Yeah. So if you're listening and you have everything with Google, this, in fact, we touched on this very subject in a previous episode when Google went down. Yeah. Don't have everything all together. Even if it is just your email, go look up something else like ProtonMail or FastMail or Postia. Mm. Because at the very least, your most basic need on the internet will be there. And stuff like ProtonMail, they support open source as well. So that's great. Yeah, it's good. So on the subject of free software and open source and so on, let's talk about entitlement. Oh, yes. So FOSS, F-O-S-S, entitlement. Free as in freedom, not free as in price. What? Yes. So, so there was this bit of a fuss kicked up when the the, the Lutris developer on their bug tracker asked uh, for a like in response to a particular feature request that they'd like five thousand dollars <laughs> for that feature request to be acknowledged, which is kind which of was, funny. It, it it was a joke, but like apparently the the person that had made the feature request got very angry about it and uh went like <laughs> went to twitter to complain about this because that's what you do and um that kind of spawned a very very stupid and very long discussion about the nature of like payments the the, the relationship to free and open source software if you can actually ask for money for a free and open source software project and if it's false advertising to ask for money for a particular free feature in a free and open source project because it's quote unquote free. Yeah. So let's get this argument down and sorted because it's a really stupid argument because people are just fucking stupid. Free yeah. free is it's 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 a bad word to use in this context because it has multiple different meanings. Yeah, I think even like RMS has touched on this, that the free was a bad choice of a word. And 
Libre is the one that they kind of prefer more, but that's a less known word, so... Yeah, so when people think free and open source, it's not talking about price. People can charge for open source software. They do, and often they should, because creating software, open source software, takes time, and time is money. It's it's a people cost that a lot of people forget, and you're not entitled to anything. Yeah, well, I mean, there are a couple of things you are entitled. If you have access to that software, then and you can use it, then you have, by the definition of free and open source software, you have access to, or should have access to, the source code so that you can make modifications and then you can distribute those onwards. But like the entitlement here seems to be that some people expect free and open source developers to w- do work, which is what it is. If you make, if you publish software on the on the internet for other people to use, that's basically work. Some people don't charge for that. Some people are nice. Some people, you know, publish their stuff for free, and that's nice. That's very nice. I, I do like the fact that there is a lot of software available that you can access freely as in freedom but also freely as in price but there is this problem where if you start feeling entitled for example to new features or bug fixes then you start treating the developers very poorly which is horrible because now there are people that are doing a service for you for free just the fact that they have made this software available to you for free and with the source code available is already that's an already a big service and they didn't need to do that but then getting like harassment and these like this nagging and all of this like rather insulting stuff on top of that like nobody absolutely nobody should like need to hear that from you and that's no. the thing that was really annoying me when I like when I saw this stupid argument pop up on like Twitter because people were basically complaining that wow the developer is not doing free work for me. Yeah. Like it's completely ridiculous because actually if if you've got some free and open source software and somebody came along and said I want this feature and using this as the example the developer comes along and says that'll be $5000. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, this the, this is the developer who's working on it. You want that feature? Well, why not pay for it? This is somebody doing work. This yeah, is what people much. need to understand. Free and open source always has a cost behind it. Yeah, I think the big problem here is that, um, like, so far, that's not a very popular thing. Like, that's not typical that you'd ask your feature requester to pay you money to implement a feature so far it's kind of been like a thing where you like you you accept like feature requests and bug reports and you're like thank you for this bug report thank you for this feature request i'll look into it at some point but um usually there isn't this expectation of developers then going and asking money for the that thing and i think like that has kind of led some people to think that they are entitled to new features and bug reports and no any any feature and like bug report uh, or bug fix that you get is basically a gift when you get that from a developer because you know they put some time into it they do need to eat regardless of you know regardless of whether or not they put their work out there for free they do need to eat and they need to 
get money to do that somehow. Yeah. And some people do get paid to work on open source stuff. Uh, usually Lots it's kind of, of like people more, do. Yeah, some people get paid to work on open source stuff in like companies or uh, various foundations and whatnot. Well, the vast some majority people of people working on the Linux kernel are paid. Yeah, they are. Uh, the absolute majority of the contributions going towards the Linux kernel are from basically uh, people that are working for some some company or another. Yeah. And, uh, so usually these are these are like rather self interested companies, but the, the the work that they pay their employees to you know do on Linux benefits everyone else, so it kind of you know works out. Yeah. So basically, when talking about FOSS free and open source, remember. It's free as in freedom, the freedom you get with it, not free as in price. If a developer wants to take donations and wants to charge for things, they're, they're allowed to, and that should be accepted. Yeah. Because I mean, people need to eat. Yeah. The, 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 the difficulty here is like, we're kind of, you know, obviously siding with the, the developers on this, and I do 100% think that a developer, like, can decide what they want to do with bug reports and feature requests and if they want to ask money for things and that's the 100% up to their you know their rights to do that um that doesn't in my opinion mean that if if there is a piece of software that you want to like criticize or something you're 100% free to do that um you're also free to criticize if a developer is being kind of like a just being difficult to work with but don't go around complaining that your fantastic feature request didn't make the cut because somebody didn't want to work on it. <laughs> like this is a, a situation where you kind of need to realize that if you really want a, a particular feature to be made, the best way to guarantee that is to either make that feature yourself or unless you just pay somebody to do it. Yeah, exactly. On the subject of open source, Pipewire is steadily going to become a replacement for Pulse Audio. So in future, modern Linux desktop environments will use Pipewire. And you've been uh, playing around with it. Yeah, I've been uh, I, I, I've been messing around with it for a couple of weeks now um, because I, I, I kind of wanted to go for the trifecta of like bleeding edge stuff. Yeah. Um, so I now have, I'm, I'm running Wayland as my main like uh, wi- windowing system. I'm using ButterFS as my main file storage, my my file system, and I recently replaced Pulse Audio with Pipewire, kind of just to see how it's like working out. Because um, I I I really like the idea of it. So what it's aiming to do is it's aiming to become a kind of like video video and audio management server for Linux. And the cool thing about it is that it handles things like screen capture for for uh, particularly some Wayland pa- platforms using the XDG desktop portal specification, but it also implements the Pulse Audio and Jack APIs. So most people are probably familiar with Pulse Audio. Most people probably run that, and Pulse Audio is fine. Um, it has some shortcomings when it comes to like doing some rather complicated stuff. Uh, or being like maintaining certain latency guarantees, uh, and that's kind of where Jack comes in. Where Jack was designed to be basically, it's, it was targeted at these more, let's say, like professional audio production kind of systems where you have 
strict uh, like latency requirements that you need to maintain. And you also need to be able to kind of plug things together so you can kind of compose these bigger like audio pipelines from the components. And that's kind of the thing that I've been interested in Pipewire is the fact that it combines the two. So instead of having to install Pulse Audio and then configure Jack to work alongside it, you can just install Pipewire and Pipewire will like happily pretend to be Jack if you are using some Jack applications and it will pretend to be Pulse Audio when you're talking to something that expects to be run on a Pulse Audio-based system. Okay, so with, with Jack... That is one of the ways where, say, if you're recording with something like OBS Studio and you want per application audio, you would need something like Jack for that, right? Well, um, Pulse Audio can do it to some extent. Um, You can set up these Pulse Audio syncs, which allow you to kind of create these places where you can mix audio from multiple sources. But it's kind of like, it's finicky. It's annoying to manage. Uh, whereas with Jack, basically there are these tools. I'm using Carla, but there are these patch bay tools that allow you to kind of have just a graph of all of the audio devices, both inputs and outputs. And then you have all of your applications in the middle. And then you can just plug what the, the input of one application to like, um, you can plug input from one application to another, you know, outputs, all of the things. You can pr- basically create these wonderful graphs where you can, for example, have uh, amplifiers, you can have various kinds of effects, and it, it's kind of cool. I haven't really been able to use it to like its like fullest extent, but one thing that I've really liked to do with it is I've basically replaced my my bass amplifier with a software-based amplifier called Guitarix, and I basically just plugged my my bass, my specifically I plugged my bass pedal to the 3.5 millimeter input on the back of my computer. And I managed to route that input into the Guitarix application and then route the output of the Guitarix application into my headphones. So I've been able to just play bass using a software-based amplifier. So I can very like very quickly just add new effects. I can change the volumes. I can even share it to like... I've What I've done sometimes is I've shared it to Mumble for other people to listen to. Right. And yeah, it, it kind of like allows you to do pretty like cool things that would be really difficult to do on Pulse Audio. And the nice thing about it is when I'm using all of these jack tools, it also seems to do pretty well with the latency. I've previously do- tried to do a similar thing with Pulse Audio, but the latency was so bad that I can't really play along to anything because it's, you know, you get the like outputs a good like half a second late and by that point it's like too delayed to really be able to you know keep up with things right and is it does pipe wire then because it covers close audio and jack does that make things like that easier it seems to it seems to be able to maintain the latency requirements pretty well um i'm not 100 sure like like i'm not an expert on pipe wire i don't know what it does differently from pulse audio to do this um and i don't really know what if there is some special magic that goes into the jack api side of things to ensure that these tools are working just as they should and i don't like honestly i don't know if there is even less latency if i was using pure jack 
But like for my use cases, it has been working kind of fine and the latency has been really good. There are some teething issues. Um, some audio with some applications seems a little bit crackly and sometimes it takes a little bit of messing around to make them work better. Uh, there, I've learned a little bit of pipe wire magic to mess with some of those applications to um, get them to behave better. But sometimes you just need to like restart an application and then it starts working fine. It's still um, quite early on though, isn't it? I think. Yeah, it's this is definitely stuff that like if you're fine with your pulse audio setup or whatever, you shouldn't just go and switch to this if you like don't have any like specific needs that you need from like the pipe wire side of things. But eventually, though, it's going to replace Pulse Audio, right? Yeah, it, I think at this point it's pretty much guaranteed that it will because it has more features and some of these features are becoming more like necessary. For example, the screen capture side of things, like I mentioned, like that's pretty much going to be the standard way of how screen capture is going to work on Wayland. So right. you're going to be running Pipewire on your systems like already or soon enough. But whether it's like when it's going to actually replace the audio component, I don't know. Um, but I've I've been enjoying using it, and uh, I so far it hasn't been annoying enough for me to leave. So it has been like fairly solid, a apart from just a couple of little issues here and there. It's been like pretty much as good as Pulse Audio has been for me. Okay. So what have you been playing recently? Well, apart from the base which kind of ties into what I've been playing. Um, not that long ago, I completed Night in the Woods, and uh, that kind of got me inspired to learn some of the, because it has like really cool music. I yeah. kind of got inspired to learn some of the Night in the Woods songs on the bass, and I've been doing that. Um, and on top of that, I have on my live streams been playing a little bit of Broken Lines, which has been pretty cool so far. Ah, Broken Lines. Yeah, that's a good one. It's... Um... It's the turn-based tactics, like, alternate history World War II game. Did I get that yeah, right? Yeah, the, the, the game is kind of spread into turns, but each turn represents a certain slice of time. So the turns between you and the enemy are simultaneous. So it's kind of like a you pause the game, and then you plan your next, like, what is going to happen during the next X amount of seconds. And then when you, you know, end your turn... Both the both sides basically execute their orders at the same time. Yeah, I think it's um, called Wego. I think the system's official name is. No, I, I I didn't know that, but now I do. Yeah, yeah, a little fact of the day for you there. Yeah, I Night in the Woods has been Night, Night in the Woods was fantastic. I, I actually want to play that again, and uh, I think after I'm done with Broken Lines, I'm probably going to stream my second playthrough of Night in the Woods because it was so good, and I need to make sure that everybody knows that. Okay, so you think Night in the Woods is an absolutely must-needed purchase, then? I, I honestly, I'd say so. Like this was like really high up there among like the best games that I've played. Yeah. I, 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 I'd slot that right somewhere close to Under Undertale and Talos Principle. Wow. That is some seriously high praise. So Night in the Woods. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have been playing... There's a couple of things. What the Golf is a recent one because they eventually put the Linux version up and it is just absolutely hilarious. It is a, a game made by people who... They say, don't understand golf, basically. <laughs> and so you'll be, it's got loads of levels and you'll be setting up and like, you'll take a swing, but like 
your character will then fly across the screen or you might be a house or a barrel that's going to explode. And it's just every level is just completely ridiculous. It's it's really, really good. And during the Steam Game Festival, which just ended, I played a lot of the Loop Hero demo. Yeah, you've been you've been telling me to look into that as well. I haven't yet, but it's definitely on my 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 to do list at some point. Yeah, I sort of broke one of my few gaming rules and I pre ordered Loop Hero because of it. Yeah, I know, I know. Hmm. Pre orders and uh, but the developer's cool. It had a demo. It's going to have full Linux support. The demo worked fantastically, and it's it's such a strange game because it it combines deck building with an idle game and there's sort like a bit of sort of village building in with it as well so your character each time goes around this loop so they walk around by themselves and they deal with all the encounters by themselves but you're building up the map and equipping their equipment and then eventually you go back to your town whenever you want or you die or your little village and then you might build something new there or upgrade that. And that's persistent. And then you start a new loop and everything's blank again. And it's, yeah, it's really weird. Really, really weird. You can just happily sit there and go make a coffee whilst your character's looping around. So it's kind of like progress hero, but with a little bit more interaction. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's a surprising amount of or tactics for it as well. Best. Even though you're not directly interacting with the character because you need to get the layout of the loop correct because you're the one that's placing down the hazards as well. So you're putting down like a graveyard, which every couple days in the loop will spawn like a skeleton that will then be walking around. It's it's so weird, but definitely worth a look. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely need to have a look into that because like I have never really cared about idle games and the fact that you've been giving it so much praise kind of makes me curious as to like is it actually good um but yeah i mean i since it has a demo i mean i'll i'll gladly try a demo probably won't pre-order because pre-ordering is evil but um (laughs) but i mean it's it's entirely possible that when i try this demo i'm gonna be like convinced and then hop on board with that i don't know we'll see well i have also for a final game, been playing Valheim. Mm. Now, Valheim is a very interesting one. It's Valheim is made with Unity. The main developer has all their main machines on Linux, so it's it's made on Linux. It's a survival game where you're basically trying to get to Valhalla. You're like, it's yeah, it's it's really weird. So you start the game and you're being carried. And then you're just dropped down into the world and then like Raven comes along and he's like, hey, here's what to do. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go punch this tree. I'm going to go grab this rock. It's a survival game, open world with a Viking after death theme to it. Yeah. So like a little bit of Norse mythology. Yeah. And just, I believe it was today that they said it. They've now sold over a million copies in the space of about a week. No, that's, yeah, that's definitely quite good. It's, it's absolutely insane, but it's well-deserved. It's a really great co-op survival game. So unlike other survival games where you're, you're fighting, you know, against other people, this is this is a co-op game. 
So it's quite, it's been quite nice to chill out with it as well and just like build a nice little hut. But what's kind of funny is there's a lot of physics interactions going on, even down to smoke. Now, when you're building a house in Valheim and you get your bed in there, you, you need a fire. But the problem is you also need to be, you need to, your house needs to be contained. So you need to have a roof and walls and so on. But then this smoke has nowhere to go and your character just like pass out and dies. So you have to then build yourself a little makeshift chimney to make sure, you know, your character doesn't die of smoke. It's just there's lots of nice little things about it. Like you'll chop down a tree. That tree will then fall down, but it might hit you on the head and kill you. It might also fall on your house and crush it. Or it might roll down the hill and take out a few more trees with it. And then you've got a shitload of wood. Yeah, it's great. It's very, very cool. So, yeah, that's what I've been playing recently. What the Golf, Loop Hero and Valheim. All worth taking a look. And you should definitely check out Night in the Woods, as Sam's eyes spoken very highly of that. Yeah, if you picked up the uh, the Itch.io BLM bundle, you should own it. So it, you, it could be that you already have it, you just haven't noticed. That is a very good point, yes. So if you do want to check out Night in the Woods, check your inbox for your link to the Black Lives Matter Itch.io bundle, that massive bundle that Itch.io did, because Night in the Woods was in it. So yeah. you so I imagine a lot of listeners already have it. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd hope so. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another co-op news punch podcast. Next time, it definitely won't be as long in between. We're going to hopefully get back to a regular sort of schedule now. Yeah, that's that's definitely the hope. Okay. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks, everyone, and good night. Goodbye.